This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Ken's trip to WarpCon. Our 2013 Cinema Hut Top Tens. Fun Placement. And Truthers. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. Welcome back to another exciting installment of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. And before we tar- start to talk about stuff proper, uh, we have some quick business to deal with. First of all, I thought that we would be remiss if we did not stop to celebrate the work of Lynn Willis, uh, who passed away recently after many years of illness. And uh, I didn't meet or deal with Lynn at all, and I think, Ken, you did just a little, but we both know him through his very important work, which I think is maybe not as well known as it ought to be. From my point of view, the thing that Lynn's work really typified was he, I think, was the first line developer on a role-playing line who really put a creative stamp on that and an individual vision and made the uh, original Call of Cthulhu line the, you know, still the target that all of us are aiming for when we create a line of uh, role-playing supplements. Well, I, I don't know that he was the first, because I suppose you could say Gary Gygax was a line developer for D&D way back in the day. Even He was the first great line developer. Oh, certainly he was the first great line developer, and still one of the only great line developers. And to take a game such as Call of Cthulhu, which was so good, you know, on its first birthing, which Lynn, of course, assisted at, uh, and then to take it from strength to strength to strength. I mean, every great... Uh, development in Call of Cthulhu came either because of Lynn or because of someone Lynn picked, uh, usually specifically Keith Herber. And if you if you look at the course of Call of Cthulhu, if you list to yourself all the truly great moments in Call of Cthulhu history, uh, they all pretty much happen on his watch. And what he managed to do was to simultaneously make the core of Call of Cthulhu clearer, I think, to to players of it while providing them with ever more interesting ways to play it. And it, it, when you look back on it, it, it seemed sort of natural at the time when I was just a gamer buying the stuff that, you know, of course Call of Cthulhu would be available in an unending series of adventures and that some of them would be standalone and many of them would be connected uh, in some sort of ongoing but totally unnecessary uh, to follow metaplot that there'd be callbacks and, and shout-outs, but it would all return to the same uh, pattern that you would ring in minor keys up and down. Uh, I got out of a regular Call of Cthulhu game before Keith Herber really uh, took over the line in the 90s with uh, the sort of the, um, the, the, the human horror of Arkham and especially of Dunwich that, that Keith brought, but Lynn oversaw that, and everywhere... Anyone was writing for Call of Cthulhu, Lynn was obviously there, and he was making the books uh, better. And having done my share of line developing, uh, I should emphasize, not nearly as ably as Lynn, 
um, I know just how hard it can be on a deadline to go to that extra effort that maybe, you know, 10% or not even 10% of gamers are going to notice out of the box, but that is going to impact the play for virtually all of the gamers who come after you and, uh, and have to play with that, uh, that, that supplement. What, what Lynn was able to do was just to really bring out the best in writers, bring out the best in other, uh, editors and line developers, and most importantly, bring out the best in Call of Cthulhu. And when you are the custodian of the greatest game in, in RPG history to, to do all that for it, to not just protect it, but to uh, cause it to grow and thrive and expand. It, it's almost an un, unimaginable uh, degree of, of labor and unimaginable degree of good humor and uh, insight is needed for that kind of a job. It, it, it's a truism that adventures don't sell, but that Call of Cthulhu historically has always bucked that trend, that people who play that game want adventures. Partly that's due to the structure of Call of Cthulhu, because it's more difficult to construct a homebrew horror mystery than it is to construct a homebrew dungeon. But it's also because he created that sense of expectation that adventures from Call of Cthulhu and from Chaosium would be worth getting, that they would be extremely well-constructed, you would learn stuff from them even if you didn't play them, they would be fun to read as sort of the gaming equivalent of closet drama, and I think that's a, a huge part of his uh, achievement there in establishing that goal for the rest of us to shoot for. And then, you know, as if that weren't enough, he also co-designed the Ghostbusters RPG, which was the second greatest after Call of Cthulhu licensed role-playing game ever produced, and which also uh, took uh, Greg Stafford's uh, designs that he'd been working on, I guess, since Prince Valiant, about um, uh, narrative-driven gameplay and uh, the dice pool mechanic and turned them into something pretty much untouchably good. Uh, it's just, it's not given to many of us to produce one masterpiece, but to be in at the birth of two masterpieces, like Lady uh, Bracknell says, it, it begins to... Um, uh, resemble uh, more than coincidence. And he also did uh, board game design as well, so I don't want to downgrade his other design work by uh, shifting the focus to his line development, but I think that that is uh, really the thing that's going to go down, at least in role-playing history, as a, a real huge formative influence, and a formative influence that uh, people don't necessarily know his name to the extent that they know Greg Stafford or Sandy Peterson or uh, Gary Gygax or Dave Arneson, but that he, in that original first wave of creativity that established the assumptions of what role-playing games are, he had an enormous role. So I want to take a, a moment to uh, give a tip of the uh, multi-hudded hat uh, to uh, uh, Lynn Willis and uh, send our condolences to his family. Next item up on our preamble segment is the Rob Ford resurrection. Just as Toronto was weaving in the dark of night to the cemetery where Rob Ford's mayoralty was marked with a monument, this thick-wristed, roseate hand thrust up from the grave to uh, grab us by the throat. And Rob Ford, despite what I indicated in our earlier segment, is once again, or still is, the mayor of Toronto. The uh, legal appeal that all of the legal experts said was uh, assuredly doomed and merely a formality, in fact, turned around on everybody, and uh, a three-judge panel ruled that the original judge who ruled uh, that Rob Ford can no longer continue in office due to a uh, conflict of interest over voting 
at council that he would not have to reimburse uh, lobbyists who were improperly asked for money for his football charity through a a series of technicalities uh, that I'm not sure that I quite want to get into because that's the nature of technicalities. Um, (laughs) Because of the technicality part. Yes. Uh, So there are two theories. Either you want to take that ruling at face value, which is that due to the peculiarities of the fact that municipalities in Ontario pass laws only under the rubric of a provincial law that allows them to pass laws, but they can't contradict any provincial laws, including the provincial law that allows them to pass laws, which they actually can't. Um, Supposedly, Toronto Council did not have the right to uh, demand reimbursement as a punishment uh, for uh, Rob Ford sending out uh, pleas for funding for his private charity on official letterhead. They could have punished him in several other ways, but apparently by not asking him for reimbursement. I, I would like to thank you for avoiding technicalities in that, because God forbid, you know, that should have happened. <laughs> yes, people might be driving or something where they could be easily distracted. And so uh, the, uh, the upshot of this is that this three-judge panel determined that uh, the uh, vote in which he improperly voted to protect his wallet to the tune of uh, three grand and change uh, was moot because they weren't allowed to pose the question. Uh, You could also, if one was a cynical sort, and of course there are no cynical sorts here on the Ken and Robin podcast, theorize that the three-judge panel realized that the political optics of the judiciary seeming to throw out a high-elected official, even though they were just following the stupid dumb laws that elected officials passed uh, was uh, unbearable or a uh, an affront to the good workings of government, which, of course, are very important here in Ontario, and therefore determined that he is still in office and still our mayor until 2014. And that means he will have to be uh, removed from office the old-fashioned uh, losing an election way. Well, barring some other excitement, I mean, surely somewhere in Canada's municipal judiciary <laughs> and three more thrilling words have never been linked. Um, there is... Well, I believe this was a provincial uh, judiciary ruling on a municipal matter. So, uh, But again, let's not get technical. Yes. But I mean, somewhere within the municipal judiciary, there is not some squint-eyed, cold-hearted uh, agent who is, you know, r- even now throwing his badge down on the desk and swearing to get Rob Ford um, uh, and bring him in regardless of you mealy-mouthed lawyers and your and your back chat. Funny you should say that, Ken, because uh, Rob Ford is uh, still facing a uh, trial for campaign irregularities and uh, could presumably be removed from office for that. So uh, the ongoing saga of Rob Ford is, as they say, still ongoing. All right. <laughs> Preamble is dispensed with. It's time to move on to travel advisory. Those of you who listen to this cornucopia of chat know that this is the segment in which Ken and I go places and then come back and talk about where we went. And in this case, Ken, much to my envy and jealousy, got to go to WarpCon. WarpCon is located where and what awesomeness did you behold there? Uh, WarpCon is located in Cork, Ireland. Uh, the uh... Uh, fiery center of Republican radicalism in the uh, in the in the time of uh, Ireland's great uh, rising against the hated British. 
uh, and it is a lovely uh, seaport, about uh, half a million people, I suppose, all told, in the in the metro area. And uh, what awesomeness I beheld there was the convention that believes that once it has gotten its guest across the Atlantic, uh, it's pretty much, you know, its job here is done, and the guest must now go out and have fun in Cork, Ireland, uh, will he or nil he. And to... Uh, to a certain breed of guests, such as myself, who is steeped in uh, the uh, perhaps more northern Irish Presbyterian way of doing things, this was a remarkable uh, degree of culture shock. They did not put you to work? You did not have to do panels and run games? We, we literally forced them to allow us to do a panel in a uh, lecture room, <laughs> which uh, was, of course, by the Irish, uh, considered to be something of a, a thing to drop by and gawp at. Uh, the notion of of a, of a guest working, and they were stunned to, to behold it. So is the idea here that people will consume so much alcohol that in retrospect they will just assume that you did a number of panels and events? I, I, I don't know exactly how how one judges these things. I, um, uh, I did run a game of Knights Black Agents, because in Ireland uh, conventions, apparently, what you do is you write up an event, and then you sell tickets for it, and it is incumbent on you to have as many GMs for your event as will be needed to cover the number of tickets sold. So it's not like in American or British conventions where you bring an event and you play for your table and you're good. Uh, if you run an event that's super popular, you'd better be prepared to bring enough GMs or recruit enough GMs in the bar, I imagine, that everyone who wants to can play, which, you know... It, it, apparently, it works in Ireland, uh, which, like many things, may not be a a, a broader uh, uh, anal analysis of its of its usefulness. But this some, so, sounds like some weird form of uh, gaming collectivism. So you don't get to just say this is a game for six players. The convention by people signing up decides how many players there are, and then you have to scramble to to run for that many many people. That seems to be the the structure. I'm again, you'd think, coming from an Anglo American background, that it would collapse of itself in a moment, but I'm sure that somewhere there was some uh, squinty-eyed beefeater in khaki who was imagining the same thing about the Irish Republic, and look at them, still uh, kicking along in prosperity and, and happiness. Now, Knights Black Agents is not an easy run, per se, and it's a fairly new game, so did you have to go and uh, conk a bunch of people on the head and indoctrinate them into the ways of uh, vampire espionage? Uh, the players uh, were all uh, happily willing to get into the unmarked van without uh, being conked on the head. Uh, and they... Uh, what about the GMs? Did you have to recruit other GMs? Uh, I did not have to recruit any GMs. Uh, Gareth Hanrahan had to recruit any GMs that needed to be recruited. And I think he recruited... Well, I know he recruited me because I found myself running it. And he, I think he <laughs> recruited a, a third GM as well. I'm not entirely sure because, of course, I was running uh, the scenario. And in my scenario, uh, at least, the player characters uh, or the players all stuck to the mission and refused to be tempted away by any of the rich uh, uh, candy-like uh, buttons to be pressed elsewhere in the scenario. And as a result, got through, I think, the first Knights Black Agents scenario of my experience that involved no real grave danger to player character life and limb. They... They snuck up on a particularly tempting distraction, realized that it was a horrible bloodbath uh, if they moved any even an inch farther in, and then pulled back, uh, which was terrific tradecraft on their part. Uh, it speaks really, to a uh, heritage of insurgency. Yeah, it speaks to something. Uh, it speaks to a heritage of having uh, been run through scenarios by Gareth, I suspect. 
But the uh, but yeah, the outcome was that everyone enjoyed uh, Gumshoe. Uh, everyone enjoyed Knights Black Agents. I think most players were new to the Gumshoe system. I believe it was either five out of six or six out of six were new. I'm a little uh, foggy on the details because I uh, was, unbeknownst to myself, enjoying what I hope is not an ongoing tradition here on uh, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff Travel Advisory of coming down with food poisoning. Yes, we do not want to have to have a segment called Ken and Robin Talk About Their Digestive Emergencies. No, we certainly don't. Um, uh, <laughs> and, and indeed, uh, during the digestive emergency in question, it was pretty much impossible for me to have said anything coherently. But fortunately, uh, it was food poisoning and not the flu or any greater uh, damage. And so, sadly, I was forced to miss the great Saturday uh, 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 revel after the, the Irish charity auction, which raised something like $15,000 uh, for uh, Irish children's charities uh, from a 500-person college campus convention, which uh, much of the bidding came as various squabbling Irish game conventions outbid each other for the right to show up at each other's game convention on a VIP ticket. <laughs> <laughs> and if and, and, it, it, it's just, it was, first of all, it's beautiful because all that money, of course, is being spent out of, out of the desire to help other people who are, who are in need. And that's just a glorious thing. But to see Ireland manage to turn its glorious tradition of, of tribal factionalism towards a charity auction, of all things, held, I should point out, in a bar offering uh, alcohol at student prices. Uh, sure, which, surely a coincidence. <laughs> surely a coincidence. Um, it was... I really wish I'd been completely healthy and capable of, of drinking along in, in good fellowship. As it was, I came home with unspent drink tickets in my pockets, and I, I can't imagine a sadder sight than an unspent Irish bar drink. Oh my ticket. God, what a tragedy. Yeah. Um, so, and of course, the uh, legend of Irish charity auctions is such that uh, that uh, concept is a past winner of a Diana Jones Award. Now, uh, as far as the VP, uh, VIP treatment that one would get by uh, bidding to go to rival convention, did that? what does that entail? Foot rubs? Uh, a... Uh, a manservant uh, constantly uh, serving up uh, uh, red breast whiskey. How does that, uh, what perks are entailed in that? I, I, I really, I, I can't tell you. I think all it means is that maybe you don't have to run a game if someone <laughs> oversells the table. You're, you're permitted to run for, for four to six players and then stop. Uh, uh, I mean, perhaps it involves, uh, you know, a and b on site or something like that. But the, 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 the notion of the Irish game convention, the sort of, uh, you know, beautiful... Uh, cooperation and mutual uh, affinity that, that that feeds the whole event. I can't imagine any one gamer showing up and thinking, now I will be the center of the Irish game convention. That's not how Irish game conventions apparently work. I don't think that they have a center, first of all. Um, uh, John Kavalik, my fellow guest of honor, was, of course, mobbed by Irish uh, uh, nationals uh, and uh, other uh, assorted uh, uh, Celts, uh, you know, de demanding that he sign various items and things, as someone, actually, as a number of Irishmen mentioned to me, in Ireland, a John Kavalik uh, product that is unsigned by John is the, is the premium value <laughs> item. <laughs> Special collector's item. Yes. Uh, but I, I, I can't really imagine that, you know, anyone going to an Irish game convention doesn't feel like a, a VIP and a, and a guest. It's just a tremendously, uh, you know... I, I don't want to say liberating, but what the hell, it's Ireland. It's a tremendously liberating experience to just show up and and the convention sort of 
there must be crises and, and, and horrible problems that they're overcoming because it's a cane convention, but it's more invisible than any other convention I've ever been to while being directed less obviously than any other game convention I've ever been to. I mean, the, the staff worked like, you know, worked like Trojans, I'm sure. Uh, you know, they had the same sort of bleary lack of sleep at the end of the show that all convention staffs have, but it's harder to tell, like I say, in a, from a convention that has much of its social function happen in a bar with alcohol at student prices. Uh, and at the risk of moving on beyond a natural endpoint, the panel that you, uh, through your uh, Chicagoan uh, work ethic, uh, helped to foist on the panel, what did, uh, what did you uh, discuss at your panel? Uh, we turned out to not discuss an awful lot. It was uh, Ken James and John reminisce about stuff, uh, pretty much. Uh, James Wallace and John Kavalik and I. And uh, people would occasionally ask a couple of questions of the sort that they felt was desultorily necessary. Uh, but it, we we uh, we, heard, we held the panel in apparently the original room of the Irish uh, Gaming Club on campus, and it, it began as a diplomacy club, and so we. We talked a great deal about the game Diplomacy. We had uh, other sort of um, uh, uh, old-school true fan types show up and, and share their own reminiscences of the club. It uh, did not, uh, it, again, as perhaps might have been predicted, it did not drive forward in the uh, edification and Chautauqua tradition that uh, North American uh, game panels go on, nor the uh, fawning attention that uh, British game panels seem to produce. And presumably, uh, James uh, Wallace managed to mention his uh, new game design. Uh, he's designed a new game for the first time in uh, uh, Metric Eons and is mm -hmm. kickstarting it even as we speak, and that's called A Las Vegas. Yes, it's A Las Vegas. It's a game of uh, amnesia and redemption, and you uh, awaken naked in the desert, uh, digging yourself out of a shallow grave as outside what looks like, but is perhaps not, Las Vegas, and I uh, played in a playtest of it on Sunday after recovering from my uh, my my swoon, and it uh, it it plays strong just as as James said. Uh, I think in the final version there will be four GMs, none of whom, all the players will will co GM, and none of whom will necessarily know the 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 truth of any given uh, larger picture. Uh, I don't know how that part works because we of course were GM'd by James in his able fashion. But uh, the mechanic is, is solid, and I'm interested to see how he sort of um, uh, rises to the occasion and perfects that design under the press of further playtesting and uh, the interest of Kickstarters. Uh, well, then, I guess uh, we have finally plumbed all of the wonders of uh, WarpCon, and the rest of us are now basking in the glow of envy that you've created, and thus Travel Advisory has done its job for another segment. and the smell of popcorn tells us that it is time for Cinema Hut, but what a Cinema Hut we have for you today. A huge, double-wide, retrospective, back-padding look back on the glory that was cinema 2012, 
Robin, I think the plan is that we're going to do our top 10 movies seen in 2012. Is that, uh, is that as you understand it? Yes. Now, I think that we may have slightly different criteria for our 2012 lists. Uh, we've long done these lists in our blog, and as we move into this audio format, we're porting it over to the podcast. So I use uh, basically North American critics' rules for what constitutes a 2012 release. So it has to have gotten a commercial release in America or here in Canada for me to count. So there are things that I saw, for example, at the film festival uh, this fall that I'm going to count next year if they get a mainstream release, because that's when everybody will be talking about them. And I think you use a uh, more uh, clear cut, if you saw it in 2012 and it was a new movie, you you put it on the list. Yeah, because A, a lot of uh, films that I see at the festival never get a commercial release, and it would be a shame to make them suffer for that. And B, because I can't be bothered to determine what the Hollywood film critics think about Hollywood film, much less their uh, nugatory notions of um, uh, criteria. So yeah, if I saw it in 2012 and it was made in 2012, then I'm going to count it as a 2012 film. So the rest of you will have to uh, put up with this slight irregularity as we move forward. Uh, my number 10, I'll kick it off, uh, was Django Unchained, uh, which is a, a big sloppy Tarantino movie. It's a... Uh, uh, crazy, it's morally incoherent, it's disjunctive, and it's extremely entertaining, and I think it makes you sort of uh, question uh, not only uh, uh, politics, but the structure of the exploitation film. It's just got uh, the rollicking dialogue that Tarantino is famous for, and if you leave the theater sort of scratching your head and troubled, well, that was the point. I I saw Django, and I uh, loved it because it was Tarantino, but it's my number 12 uh, not least because it is such a fall-off from uh, the perfection that was, uh, well, perfection is perhaps a strong word, but the phenomenon in my mind that was Inglorious Bastards. Uh, I think that if Inglorious Bastards is 100, Django is somewhere in the mid-80s. And uh, I, I certainly enjoyed it, but I think that the, the center point of the movie is perhaps under uh, under-motivated. So your uh, number 10, then, is? My number 10 is actually a movie that we've discussed here uh Ken and Robin, uh, Safety Not Guaranteed, which blew my mind that it wound up that high on my list ahead of such um, uh, such big hitters as Lincoln and Looper. Uh, and, but there it was. It turned out to be, you know, unlike Looper, a movie whose time travel rules all made sense, and unlike Lincoln, a movie that knew when to freaking end the movie. And so I really had to sort of put it up there, and I was as surprised as the next man that it turned out to be my number 10, but it was. It's a delightful uh, sort of cross between the time travel film and the indie buildings Roman. And I think that if that sounds good to you, then you will like Safety Not Guaranteed. And if it sounds like a horrible uh, mess of poison, then you probably won't like Safety Not Guaranteed. But it is not a movie that fails anywhere it sets its hand, which cannot be said, certainly, about Lincoln. I liked it quite a bit, too. It actually comes in at number 29 on my list. But that is a testament to the fact that I am good at picking movies that I will like, uh, not the fact that uh, that is by any means a a piker, and I would also recommend uh, checking that film out. Uh, My number nine film is uh, David Cronenberg's Cosmopolis, uh, a series of uh, surreal two-handers, most of which take place in a, a limo as it cruises through the streets of a uh, New York that looks uh, surreally like Toronto as uh, capitalism collapses all around uh, its young tycoon lead character played by uh, Robert Pattison. And it concludes with a, a great 
acting duel between him and Paul Giamatti, and it takes the stylized dialogue of Don DeLillo uh, straight from his novel and puts it into the screenplay page. And uh, uh, it did not get the uh, sort of big praise that uh, recent Cronenberg films uh, have warranted from others. But what do others know? I quite liked it, and so I put it at number nine. Absolutely. Um, I did not see that film, sadly. Um, It is on my top ten movies I did not see in 2012 list. Um, and uh, I, I saw the, the Guy Madden film instead for my Canadian auteur content that is required. But sadly, Keyhole, uh, I think, comes in at 15. Um, I liked Keyhole, and it comes in at 20. There you go. My number nine is Anna Karenina, which uh, proves that if you put uh, Kira Knightley in a Tolstoy novel and you let Tom Stoppard write the script and you then go absolutely mad with the set design, I will over, I will forgive your... Uh, weak and pathetic Vronsky. Um, admittedly, since Vronsky in the novel is a fairly weak and pathetic character, uh, casting a weak and pathetic actor to play him is not the crucial oversight that might have knocked Anna Karenina off my list. But I think that uh, Joe uh, Wright is underrated as a director, certainly as a director of Kieran Knightley. He seems to do a good job at that. And the source material is obviously one of the, the, the great stories in uh, literature. It's uh, handled remarkably well and with remarkable understanding in our postmodern age, uh, combining Tolstoy's outrage at society with a understanding of why Anna Karenina doesn't just, you know, move to Liverpool and uh, take up life on the music hall stage. That is always the problem with uh, melodrama is selling the contemporary audience on the fact that the characters are constrained. Um, I did not check that film out, uh, I think because I did not like Atonement, but then the reason I didn't like Atonement was because of the uh, source material, so I will have to uh, uh, give that another look when it comes around. My uh, eighth pick is Zero Dark Thirty, uh, Catherine Bigelow's recreation of the hunt for Osama bin Laden. Uh, It has uh, an interesting take on the real-life nuts-and-bolts procedural. I really enjoyed the way it just sort of puts you in the situation and requires you to make judgments about the situation. And uh, just that it's a sense of the recreation of being inside those events and how much just, uh, you know, being a pain in the ass in a political structure was necessary for the lead uh, character to uh, sell everybody on taking this big chance. And of course, uh, in real life, that's not the sort of person you give a promotion to. Um, I cannot uh, respond to Zero Dark Thirty at this moment because it would spoiler where it is on my list. Aha. Uh-huh. So let us move on to your number eight. Uh, so my number eight is one that I suspect does not uh, apply in your uh, constrained vision of rules because it is Room 237, which I saw at the Chicago Film Festival and I know you saw at Toronto, but I suppose has not received whatever passes for a mainstream release amongst documentaries about film. If I was to make a premonition about the future, Room 237 might appear on my 2013 list. Um, I would sincerely hope so, and one hopes somewhere in the eighth position, because it is a phenomenal, phenomenal piece of film criticism, and even more phenomenal piece of criticism of post-modernity and post-modernism, and the the ways of seeing. It is simultaneously a much-needed corrective and a joyous bath in the uh, phenomenon it seeks to correct. I think that it's uh, it's just cracking good. There's not a flaw in it in terms of its structure, and it's just hilarious. 
Um, I, I endorse this film, and as I say, it could well end up in my next year's top ten. Uh, one film that will not end up in my next year's top ten is Magic Mike, which comes in at number seven on my list. I'm a uh, huge aficionado of the works of Steven Soderbergh, uh, the way that he takes existing genres and adds both reality and a gloss of filmic style onto the proceedings uh, is always uh, riveting in a way that the material doesn't necessarily suggest. Uh, Magic Mike, of course, is a tip of the hat to sort of uh, 70s era uh, working man uh, entertainment films. He's, uh, there's obviously uh, a lot of uh, urban cowboy in there and uh, uh, Saturday Night Fever. Uh, and the uh, sense of sort of, uh, well, I, I said it already, the sense of style and character reality and uh, natural sort of improv style acting, uh, plus a performance by uh, Matthew McConaughey that achieves what can only be, be described as peak McConaughey. <laughs> this is, I, I don't know, it, there's, uh, you know, speaking of The Shining, you know, the moment that Jack Nicholson reached peak Nicholson was his performance in The Shining. I'm not sure exactly when Christopher Walken reached peak Walken. Uh, it, I don't think it was as late as the uh, uh, watch uh, uh, monologue, uh, but uh, here is, uh, is McConaughey uh, just uh, eating up the scenery in his role as the impresario of the uh, male stripper troupe, and uh, I just uh, really, really enjoyed that film in a way that the subject matter might not suggest. I did not see Magic Mike uh, between the timing and the subject matter. Uh... It just was not uh, practicable for me. I, I am a, a great aficionado of Soderbergh, but I do not see everything that he releases into the theater, which is why, for example, I didn't. I have not yet seen Contagion. Uh, I would also recommend uh, checking up on Contagion because right. that's uh, putting the Soderberghian gloss on the disaster movie, and is uh, quite interesting. Doubtless. Well, my number seven is another one that doesn't count by uh, your puny human rules. Uh, the Exam, which was the Hungarian spy film that I saw again at the Chicago Film Festival. Uh, again, I, <laughs> I I give leave to doubt that a Hungarian spy film is going to have a North American theatrical release that uh, counts even for uh, Hollywood film critics. And so I figure it needs to be on a list somewhere. It is a absolutely note-perfect spy movie. It has a good chunk of prisoner-style psychological uh, examination going on, while uh, being a real acid-tipped portrait of the police state as it was lived, certainly as it was lived in Hungary. I thought that, again, it's one of those movies there is nothing wrong with, and the only reason to put another movie higher is because they would just bring something better to the mix that is already a perfect movie. But there are few enough perfect movies in the world that you should uh, tip your uh, stylish Hungarian secret police uh, Hamburg hat to them when you run into them. My number six carries on a theme from my number seven, which is Haywire, also directed by Steven Soderbergh. This is uh, his action film that highlights the mixed martial arts stylings of uh, Gina Carano and uh, features Antonio Banderas and uh, Ewan McGregor and Michael Fassbender and takes the uh, his approach to style and life as it is lived and uh, puts it in an action movie context. It uh, introduces a really interesting new uh, style of fighting. Uh, the sort of 
silent uh, gunfight at the beginning where the sound drops out uh, feels really real and visceral and it's uh, just a fun exercise in genre style when even the establishing shots to me have this sort of magical atmosphere to them that is very difficult uh, to describe yes uh again i can't respond to Hightower immediately but know that it will be coming uh my number six is the master uh, which i suspect you will likewise have somewhere on your list i thought that uh philip uh seymour hoffman and uh even more than um even more than joaquin phoenix uh really uh dominated that film in a way uh that he one hopes was intended to as the as the titular master uh it's one of those movies that you can't really put your finger on what exactly you think about it as you walk out of the theater like inglorious bastards was and it is a movie that still, I think, resists even my, my retrospective analysis, except to say that you have two phenomenal performances as well as a number of merely epical performances. You have a live wire of a subject matter, certainly in the world of Hollywood, and you have the absolutely unquestionably at top of his form direction of PTA, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, and it's just... Yeah, again, it, it was just a phenomenal piece of work. I was never, for a second, not avidly interested in what was going on on the screen when I was watching The Master. My number five uh, is my Hollywood blockbuster pick, and that would be The Avengers. This is a movie that by no account should work at all, uh, yet in a magical CGI souffle, uh, blending a zillion different characters and performances and plot lines, uh, keeps the energy up throughout, keeps the entertainment up throughout, uh, delivers what I think uh, is the iconic standard version of uh, Bruce Banner and uh, the Hulk. Hulk even says puny humans at one point. Uh, and speaking of someone who briefly wrote uh, the Hulk, uh, I, I cannot approve more of that. And uh, it's just uh, a uh, sparkling uh, piece of uh, entertainment that respects the source material a lot more than actual comic books do these days. Uh, the Avengers hits at number 19 on my list, just ahead of the LCD sound system uh, concert film Shut Up and Play the Hits. Uh, and it hits because of all of those good things that you mentioned. It is number 19 because there are so many refrigerator moments that uh, you gain 10 pounds just thinking about the movie after you've left it. But certainly for degree of difficulty, it deserves uh, great plaudits as well as, as you mentioned, uh, uh, Ruffalo's phenomenal Bruce Banner. Uh, so kudos to the Avengers, even if number five on my list is Haywire. Uh, I rate it um, uh, probably about where you do, uh, and for much the same reasons. Uh, I am a, as perhaps no one who knows me is un uh, unaware, a aficionado of the spy thriller, and when Steven Soderbergh sets his hand at the spy thriller and the action movie, he does a phenomenal job. A lot of people uh, had fairly... Uh, to me, daft criticisms of it, but most of them come from not understanding what I think to be Soderbergh's project, which was to make an action movie by carving away everything that doesn't belong in an action movie or doesn't belong in a spy thriller. So all the scenes, people were like, where are they? My response is, you know what happened in those scenes. Why should Steven Soderbergh bore you by, by filming them? Uh, let's get to Gina Carano beating the living hell out of Michael Fassbinder in what is possibly the greatest movie fight since, you know, Basil Rathbone and uh, Douglas uh, and Errol Flynn on the steps in Robin Hood. It's certainly in the top ten movie fights of all time, and 
that alone would put Haywire on a top ten. And the fact that it works so well in all the ways that you've already adduced uh, puts it at number five on my list. Yeah, anyone who complains that it doesn't have enough boring connective material uh, is indeed missing the point. Uh, number four is a French film called Holy Motors by Leo Carra, uh, which is a bizarre uh, magical film of a uh, man who is born from location to location throughout Paris over the course of a very long day, uh, putting on various uh, prosthetic makeups and uh, being required to engage in various scenarios in a way that we do not uh, quite understand as a monstrous Quasimodo uh, figure uh, crashes a fashion shoot. Uh, later, uh, Kylie Minogue uh, shows up to uh, uh, sing a uh, really moving uh, musical number. It's a, a crazy tribute to the uh, power and seduction of film, and a, it really sort of tests the boundaries between what is a fa fantastic film and what is merely stylized and strange. And uh, it has a, an amazing uh, lead performance in it, and it's uh, getting a lot of praise in art house cinema circles, but perhaps not so much in the geekly circles that we are familiar with. So uh, I would urge uh, everyone listening to this, who to whom that sounds interesting, to check out Holy Motors. I could have seen Holy Motors at the Chicago Fest, but I passed on it because I'd seen a Leo Karas short that left me... Uh, cold is the polite term for what it left me, but it left me uninterested in seeing over two hours of Leo Carra, but on your uh, testimony, I will rethink that plan. My number four is Zero Dark Thirty, uh, Catherine Bigelow's uh, <laughs> uh, literally a thriller in that it is a mystery in which you know who did it, uh, and it is a Greek tragedy of the uh, in the sense that you uh, know how uh, the how the, uh, the, the 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 hero will 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 reach her uh, climax. Um, it is also, I think, a phenomenally interesting uh, movie in terms of Catherine Bigelow's choices in what to show and what not to show. She had, you know, 11 years worth of, uh, of, of activity to demonstrate, and from the first frame in which you do not see uh, the Twin Towers falling, you know that you need to pay attention to Catherine Bigelow's directorial choices. Um, uh, obviously, Jessica Chastain is phenomenal in it. Uh, the, uh, the guy who plays her immediate sort of mentor in the uh, detainee program, uh, whose name I uh, have forgotten, is the is another uh, terrific acting presence. And I, I want to give a shout-out to James Gandolfini, whose performance as Leon Panetta is, I think, going to be underrated by people um, going forward. But uh, the it's it's really should be looked at by by film scholars going forward forever as how to do a celebrity cameo and how to put a minor role suddenly into uh prominence for one act of a film um i think that it was just a a, a terrific little set piece within what is obviously a phenomenal bureaucratic thriller in its own right it was really important to stock that film with great character actors with immediately recognizable presences, just so you're not going, hey, wait, who's that guy again? Which you maybe still are, but it, the, the casting on that film is also really great. Um, a film with no casting whatsoever is my uh, number three choice, The End of Time, a meditative documentary by uh, Peter Mettler about time. Uh, I mentioned it before in my discussion of the uh, films I saw at TIFF, uh, which is a, it's sort of a beautiful essay film with these incredible uh, tableaus that he films of everything from creeping volcanism to the deteriorating heart of 
uh, Detroit City. And uh, it's something that if you can possibly see it on a screen at a Cinematheque, it really acquires its full meditative power. So for your uh, offbeat uh, documentary choice, uh, I found something really uh, magical and transformative about the end of time. Okay, my number three is also magical and transformative, but is as far from a documentary as can be imagined. It's Whit Stillman's Damsels in Distress. Uh, Whit Stillman is something of a... Um, of, of a Baroque taste, I suppose. He's only made, you know, three movies, now four movies, uh, in, in a career that is probably about as long as, um, uh, as Soderbergh's by now. Um, longer, I think. And every one of them is a gem. Uh, the last three of them have been pretty much near perfect masterpieces. Damsels in Distress, uh, is a, <laughs> A, a movie set in another uh, completely hermetic, un, in, <laughs> impenetrable uh, universe, namely uh, upper-class women at a upper-class university who are concerned with things no one in history has ever been concerned with. In this particular case, uh, the uh, the main character's desire to start a dance craze, which I, I think has not been... Um, the, the center of a film since Beach Blanket Bingo, uh, but it's it's a phenomenal movie on, on pretty much every level. If you're it, once once you've bought into Whit Stillman, Damsels in Distress is more of the same, only backwards and in heels. Greta Gerwig uh, should be in another Whit Stillman trilogy like Chris Eigenman was in the '90s. Uh, the the casting is again pretty much phenomenal all the way through, and it 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 enters into the, the that sort of arch. Uh, playfulness of dialogue. Uh, my friends, when they they see movies with with me that I like better than they, they say, "Oh well, you liked it because of the writing," as though that is <laughs> <laughs> as though that is some sort of down check for me. Disgraceful. Yes. Um, well, well, I quite liked it too, although I could only fit it in at number twenty four, which again implies that it was a great year in film. Uh, I think it was unfairly maligned by critics who thought that the previous films were not stylized but were documentaries of a particular social <laughs> strata and were shocked to find that this was uh, taking place in an stylized alternate universe. But of course, for me, that's a plus, not a minus. Yeah. And again, the the person who doesn't believe that Barcelona and last days of disco were not stylized cartoons of a social uh, setting, understand nothing about either film or satire and perhaps need to be eased into a different uh, life choice. They may be the same people who want the boring transitional sequences left in. Uh, number two for me is uh, The Master. You guessed correctly. It's high up on my list. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman's uh, performances are both uh, incredible. The uh, mysteriousness and beauty of the piece is, again, uh, something that I found uh really bracing. I love the fact that it is a film that does not explain itself by having a speech where a character gets up and explains what's going on. Although, if you have a film where there's a shot near the beginning of the movie, and then that shot is also the last scene of the movie, the director is telling you what is going on. He's just doing it visually. So, if you did not get uh, the master uh, imaginary critic that I'm railing against. Uh, once again, uh, Ken and Robin suggest that you uh, get another line of work. <laughs> okay. My number two is uh, The Dark Knight Rises, because when you combine Burkean conservatism and Batman, you pretty much have me at <laughs> Batman. Um, I, I think that uh, The Dark Knight Rises, uh, one can argue that there are individual uh, narrative problems in it, much the way that I did against the Avengers. But in this case, the sort of uh, 
sprawling 19th century uh, Balzacian narrative tone of the piece. Uh, you know, Dickensian, uh, as uh, Nolan would no doubt want me to say, uh, makes uh, makes one realize that these flaws are merely part of the larger tapestry and should not be seen as problems with the film itself. And of course, the centerpiece of the film itself, the uh, f- uh, completion of Batman's character arc within another character arc, is tremendous. And Hathaway has never been better. Certainly, there have been you know only uh, one better Catwoman which is saying something, given the caliber of cat women that there have been. And uh, Tom Hardy's Bane, while perhaps unfair to Tom Hardy, is a viscerally tremendous presence uh, in every scene that he's in. It's just a terrifically put-together Batman movie, which, again, is harder than it, than it looks, apparently, and it's a fitting capper to the trilogy. For me, it came in at number 12, which mathematicians will note is almost number 10. Uh, my number one film uh, is Moonrise Kingdom, Um, I'm a huge uh, Wes Anderson fan as well. Again, you will sense a theme of my appreciation of stylized uh, deadpan uh, takes on uh, real life. I found this one uh, particularly moving, almost as moving as I find the Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, It's a a beautiful, uh, magical, uh, crazy, funny, and as I said, uh, deadpan uh, film and... uh, you know, there, there's just the perfect dialogue uh, couplet in it, which is, uh, uh, was he a good dog? Who's to say? My number one uh, is in a beautiful example of Ken and Robin never question content from Ken and Robin, uh, Moonrise Kingdom by Wes Anderson, which, uh, again, uh, for all the reasons Robin cites and more, is pretty much a tour de force of filmmaking. It is uh, Wes Anderson at his Wes Anderson-iest, um, it manages to single-handedly overturn the abortion that was Darjeeling Limited, um, and uh, that was a job of work by itself, as well as just being uh, a wonderful combination of a literally juvenile adventure story and a important story about family and society that causes neither to be slighted in the telling, and that is... I think almost literally impossible to do well. And Wes Anderson has, has done it superbly. So I think Moonrise Kingdom, if you um, can stand Wes Anderson at all, then you owe it to yourself to see Moonrise Kingdom ideally uh, a couple of times. And that uh, takes us to the end of both of our top tens in a uh, moment of agreement. So uh, let's get out of the cinema hut and move on to another location. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin, so let's ask Ken and Robin. Lowell Francis asks Ken and Robin, In episode 5, Ken mentioned he and Dennis Detwiller had very different senses of how to place the fun and access to that fun in a game. Could you talk more about that and how both Ken and Robin see the GM's role in setting up fun for the players? Well, I guess I will start since uh, uh, Lowell is specifically asking me about my uh, sense of how to place the fun versus Dennis's. Dennis believes that the fun comes, uh, I think, in digging and uh, patiently reassembling the fun, which has been carefully smashed and littered across the, the, the landscape. Uh, his notion of playing, for example, um, uh, superheroes at a temporary employment agency who are ground down by the man is uh, a kind of fun. 
but (laughs) much like his game in which you play superheroes in Omaha Beach where you can be blown up by a landmine because sadly your only power was x-ray vision. Um, I I think that that, that Dennis and I believe that uh, the fun uh, should be in different places. Dennis, obviously, like I say, believes that the fun needs to be uh, assembled and earned so that you appreciate every moment of the fun, whereas I believe that the whole hobby is... Uh, basically entertainment, and therefore don't mind ladling the fun out uh, at the very start, and then letting the choices the players make with their fun, if uh, con- uh, confusion and uh, and thwarting is to be had, thwart them, so that they at least feel like I did not stint them of their fun. I am merely saying, well, it sounded like fun when you started, but aha, it turns out being a superhero in World War II involves a great many landmines. Yeah, at the risk of turning this segment into uh, Dennis Detwiller is not here to characterize his own views, uh, you sort of speak to a classic schism in the, you know, slowly earning your right to have fun, uh, which comes from the original D&D tradition of starting out as a first-level, extremely fragile character who you have to roll 12 or 14 of before one of them finally takes and survives, and you fight a bunch of centipedes and rats and slowly work your way up to uh, third level, and you're in uh, a not an adversarial relationship with the DM necessarily, but you're in an adversarial relationship with the world where if you do get to the end of that long struggle, you feel a huge sense of accomplishment because um, through a uh, Protestant work ethic and a lot of Lutheran suffering, you finally arrive at a sense of power fantasy and it seems more real to you. Whereas uh, I think you and I are sort of more on the same page of, uh, you know, maybe that, long grind was fun the first time when you were 12, but after a while, even if you want to introduce sort of bleak tones and thematic material into your settings, the way I so often do, that you want to do it in a way that people find uh, ideally empowering. And that uh, because people are trained so much in the earlier way of, you know, I will be punished if I make a mistake or this is a game where you die face down in the mud or, you know, that sort of macho suffering ethic, it becomes very difficult to situate the fun in the, hey, you are a character like you would see in fiction. You are a superhero or you are a fantasy hero and get people out of that uh, overcautious mold. So ultimately, it, it is a matter of taste and what you find rewarding, you know, whether you want to come out on top after a long, desperate struggle, or whether you want to kind of start out uh, cool and still face obstacles, but still be powerful and have agency, uh, is essentially not a a matter that you can resolve as uh, one is the right thing and one is the wrong thing. It's a matter of taste. And in any group, you have to sort of gauge what people really want. Some people will feel cheated without that grind. But I think uh, if there is a sort of a false consciousness involved, that a lot of people will still tell you they want the suffering, but actually want to get kind of quick to the, the power fantasy. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I, I agree that playing D&D once is tremendously fun, but I think that, you know, cheat codes exist for a reason. People would like to get to the part where, where they are flinging fireballs and bouncing orcs off their shield and uh, being Conan the Barbarian, not the guy who will eventually be Conan the Barbarian. And I, I believe that given, you know, where you and I are as game designers, we should at least make it possible for people to, you know, start out 
you know, on the bridge of the Enterprise, not down in the engine room, swabbing out the dilithium chamber. And you can see that even as the as D and D has evolved, that first level characters have got more and more cool things to do and are less and less fragile. Uh, also, because they become more complicated, and there's sort of a a feedback loop effect where the more things you give somebody to do, the more time it takes to generate a character and you less you want to have your character die in the early going and have that macho sense of, you know, this is the guy who survived after 12 trials. I mean, the ultimate expression of the universe grinding you down, of course, is the original Traveler uh, character generation rules, which famously allow you to die during character generation if you get a little too greedy trying to have too old and experienced a character. And that's really brilliant in one sense. Uh, Ray Winninger brought that back in a, a way that sort of commented on it in the uh, underground game. But it, it, it comes to, goes to the question of, you know, where you put the fun is a matter of where, where people find their fun and where they want to find their fun. The other weird thing about the tradition of the grind is that although tabletop role-playing has pretty much dispensed with it, even in its original D&D form, it is still uh, found throughout video gaming because of course especially in in games where you have a subscription model and they want to engage you with it the longer they can make you do a bunch of dumb stupid missions before you get to do anything fun the more money they make also i suppose there's a degree of sort of training you to use the game engine and the universe with the controllers and with the keypad in a way that we don't really have in uh role-playing games you know you run a couple of fight scenes you're pretty much good in a role-playing game whereas i assume in in a more complex uh, online game that you sort of have to teach people to put it into their Twitch memory. And that takes some degree of rat killing. Well, one could, would think, though, that you could learn to play the game while doing something actually enjoyable. My, my favorite, my term for this is Conan gets a fish. Mm -hmm. uh, in the uh, Conan MMO, one of your early quests is to, uh, as Conan or Conan analog or as future Conan, one of your missions is to get a bucket of fish from one fishmonger and take it to another fishmonger. Now, I have not read the complete works of Robert E. Howard, but I do not recall that story. I think it's a Steve Costigan story that DeCamp turned into a Conan story. Uh, I see. There you go. Um, I should mention at this uh, juncture that fragile characters does not mean no fun. Obviously, Call of Cthulhu has famously fragile characters because the fun in Call of Cthulhu is in the danger, in the confrontation of your character against the implacable uh, Lovecraftian universe and the knowledge that you are literally putting your character's life on the line, his, uh, his uh, you know, f uh, fragile stats up against the grinding of uh, 21st century physics. And so fragile characters is not no fun. It is that if your fun is power fantasy, uh, stop with the fragile characters and get to the power and the fantasy. Right. And if your desire is to confront the horrors of the world, let's confront the horrors of the world. Let's not do a bunch of paperwork first. Right. Uh, well, I think that question has been asked and answered, and it's time to move from our uh, inquiry area to our conspiracy corner. And here we are at Conspiracy Corner, and uh, this week I thought we would uh, talk about the phenomenon of truthers. Uh, not to bring up Sandy Hook again, but uh, there's been a simultaneously weird and entirely understandable phenomenon where there is now a group of Sandy Hook truthers who are not only arguing that they uh, that 
nothing much ought to be done about a gun control, uh, which is a defensible position, which uh, has been defended earlier in this podcast, but uh, that the events of Sandy Hook did not actually happen, that it's a massive conspiracy by uh, some multi-tentacled and uh, ultimately probably Jewish entity uh, to take people's guns away from them. And of course, this is not the first truther movement. Truther movements are neither uh, of the right or of the left. There was a truther movement surrounding uh, 9-11, for example, where uh, that was not an argument that it didn't happen, but it was an argument that it was uh, an inside job, as it were. Uh, you've also had uh, truther movements uh, surrounding uh, the moon landing around uh, Obama's uh, citizenship. And uh, so I thought that we would uh, dig into the uh, history of truthers and uh, find uh, what impulse underlies them. So what, uh, what do all of these movements uh, have in common, Ken, if they, in fact, do have something in common? Well, I mean, to some extent, a conspiracy theory, by definition, is a, con is a theory that the understood truth about a topic is not the real truth, and there is a deeper, more hidden, more occulted truth that only the elite or the uh, Gnostic or the sufferer can get to. And this, of course, is, you know, basically the fundamental insight of Gnosticism. So, in a way, it goes back to uh, the first collision of Persian and Western culture in, you know, say, the 3rd or 4th century BC. The uh, specific truther movement, I think, is coming out of a general... Uh, skepticism about received authority that in many cases is, you know, quite warranted. Uh, but uh, circumstances such as uh, Watergate or in the later determination that the Gulf of Tonkin incident did uh, literally did not happen or certainly did not happen in the way that the Johnson administration said it did um, <clears throat> have fed a desire to, well, if uh, you can say that, uh, um, you know, uh, Watergate was actually masterminded by the White House and that the Vietnam War was a lie, then why can't you say that about 9-11 and why can't you say that about Obama's uh, birthplace and why can't you say that about the moon and Sandy Hook and everything else? And I don't know to what extent, you know, you want to uh, impute any sort of broader philosophical content to what is, you know, fundamentally nihilism and Gnosticism uh, met in Unholy Wedlock. But I am reminded whenever I find a new uh, horrific uh, example of trutherism uh, of uh, the Jean Baudrillard uh, collection, uh, The Gulf War Did Not Take Place, which he wrote uh, during the Gulf War to emphasize that the Gulf War that we were seeing on our screen was merely spectacle and that as spectacle it is epiphenomenal and therefore uh, is not actually happening, which while entertaining uh, uh, as uh, journalism and as, I think, meretricious as philosophy, is downright, you know, toxic to the fundamental understanding of Western society, which is that a educated and informed populace makes decisions uh, for the betterment of society. And if you take out any of those sort of axioms, Western society is, I think, you know, demonstrably inferior to, you know, what Plato urged, the aristocracy that rules by the noble lie. Um, and since the truther movement seems to believe we already have that, I'm not exactly sure what they think they're defending with uh, this sort of uh, childishness. I think there's a, a psychological thing going on, which is that there is a conflict between one's uh, constructed beliefs and an event that seems to throw those beliefs into doubt. And what uh, most sane, stable people do is they incorporate the new set of facts into their belief structure. Some people 
have a conversion moment and they uh, change their opinions on whatever their belief structure is. But most people preserve their belief structure through a uh, simple set of rationalizations, uh, um, and which may even be a, a correct set of rationalizations, but that a certain percentage of people find the facts so uh, threatening, so uh, inherently contradictory that they have to create a new narrative in order to uh, go on happily with their existing belief structure. So if you are uh, a 9-11 truther, chances are that you uh, build your identity around a high degree of skepticism towards your own uh, American or Western governments, uh, and therefore don't have room in your brain for a non-binary situation of there being bad people you dislike in power and having another set of bad people you dislike attack the people in power. Because where does that leave you? You don't have a dog in that fight. You don't have an orientation toward it. So uh, in extreme cases, people will then build, okay, well, let, let's build an alternate narrative that keeps me in my comfortable world of binary thinking. And I think, again, you know, that uh, Sandy Hook trutherism is another example of that, that if you are uh, really highly attached to uh, uh, gun rights and perhaps uh, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, that you see somebody on the news weeping over the events at Sandy Hook and you start to go, well, that guy's faking it. I'm going to harass him. And it's uh, nuts, but it makes emotional sense because it keeps your belief system not only intact, but intact in a stark and simple way that doesn't require you to accommodate nuance. Well, um, I, I think that if you go deep into the weeds of any truth, truth or movement, their problem is not in incorporating uh, nuance per se. The problem is that the quest becomes self-fulfilling, right? I mean, if you read any given, say, Kennedy conspiracy author over the course of their output, uh, and this is either because of the sort of demented publisher parish uh, drive that exists within conspiratology, or, or conspiracy theory, or because of the natural uh, method by which uh, people uh, pursue uh, information, they are constantly uh, reformatting their beliefs, and not in the sense of we have to take account of this new information, which also happens, but also to sort of, you know, move and readjust based on whatever the, the, the current uh, uh, villain of the day is, or to cast certain aspects of the counter-narrative into different lights, and and so you you wind up sort of I, I think that my initial uh, uh, impulse to equate it with Gnosticism is true that the that the notion within uh, truther movements specifically and conspiracy uh, nuts in general is that the quest is itself a holy act right that you by act you know like it's like whenever uh, people are called on their nine eleven trutherism they're all like I'm just asking questions man and th as though that is somehow in, in innately virtuous. And, of course, it isn't. It's, you know, no more innately virtuous than I'm just smashing stuff with a hammer, man. I mean, some stuff, you know, walnuts, say, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda should be smashed with a hammer. Other stuff, perhaps not so much. Well, and, and it's disingenuous, too, because they're, of course, not just asking questions. That's a similar dodge to, you know, when you get caught out being an Internet troll going, oh, I was just doing a psychological experiment to see if you can take a joke. No, you actually weren't. You were actually saying those horrible things and meaning at them at the time, but now you you can't cop to them. I, I would think, though, that I think there's a synthesis of our two views, which is that the initial emotional response is about 
you know, that gets you down the path of conspiracy, conspiracy is to see this sort of disjunction between a new set of facts and what you want to believe. And that once you get down that set of steps, there's a series of techniques that you have to use in order to sustain the sense of conspiracy. And that's the, you know, well, you know, this hasn't been proven and proof of, uh, you know, your counter argument is merely proof of my argument and all of the sort of, uh, cheap, uh, pseudo intellectual tricks that you use to, uh, maintain this increasingly untenable, uh, alternate reality. Well, I mean, uh, again, it's, it's, well, it's not terribly unfair, but it's just a tiny bit unfair. There are, uh, conspiracy theorists who, I think rise above pseudo intellectual tricks. They're engaged in the same sort of of discourse and the same sort of questioning that genuine historians and and genuine uh you know uh detectives uh, do engage in. They're just engaging them in the service of a uh of a false philosophical grounding. Uh they're not, you know, asking these questions in the service of truth. It's like um uh it's it's like a actually socially dangerous version of writing fanfic about uh you know Harry Potter you know as long as you know that you're in a fantasy world and you have no impact on you know uh Harry Potter that's fine it's when you start believing your own press clipping that trouble ensues well i think it's possible to be to believe in a conspiracy without being a truther that and perhaps this is just a, another case of me defining my own terms but this is 50% my own podcast so i'm going to define some terms darn it uh and i would think that that the truther is the person who embarks on this uh quest to something that is uh you, you know patently absurd to begin with and then follows the techniques that have been developed for perhaps you know more tenable conspiracies uh and and try to put them to use for this uh, what is basically a skin for psychological denial? Yeah, I, I think certainly. Um, uh, you know, again, I think we're we're both looking at the the opposite ends of the same phenomenon, where you know you talk about um, uh, pursuing this thing based on a fundamentally nonsensical uh, premise. That's my argument that they're you know they may or they may not be using uh, a, a sound investigatorial technique, and in many cases they're doing you know more you know, on-the-ground investigation than the actual historians of the case are, because the actual historians know who killed Kennedy. It was a crazy communist named Lee Harvey Oswald, case closed. But a lot of the details about Dallas in 1963 got dug up by the crazy people, or the people who are, you know, pursuing a incorrect uh, thesis, and something that, you know, when you look at it from a larger philosophical viewpoint, you know, the, the, the larger sorts of questions of would a universe constructed the way you believe this Kennedy assassination was constructed, would it continue to exist for a microsecond? Uh, then you say, well, obviously it wouldn't. And I think that what, when you, when you, if you want to define the truthers specifically in uh, opposition to conspiracy theorists, I think a denial of an event that everyone knows actually happened is a way to go about it. Now, not a lot of the 9-11 truthers believe that there was never a World Trade Center there, but I think all of them deny that there was an Al-Qaeda attack on the Trade Center. And many of them deny that there were air jet airliners involved at all. Right. Another test may be uh, the truther wants his conspiracy to be true because it reifies something about his belief structure, whereas you can believe in a conspiracy and wish that it weren't true. Well, you can certainly say you wish it weren't true. I, I, I think that uh, con uh, conspiracy theorists and apocalypse uh, mongers uh, both, at, at least half of them want it to be true. I think, you know, 
to the same extent that uh, a guy like Jim Mars, who has dedicated his entire life to proving that uh, the entire United States government um, uh, uh, cooperated to kill John F. Kennedy, well, he may say, well, of course, I wish that I could believe in the moral probity of the FBI and Dallas police departments. I don't think that he wishes that at all, any more than I think that Al Gore doesn't, in his darkest moments, want the seas to rise and wash away everyone who thinks Al Gore is full of bananas. Oh, well, I, I got to depart with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, well, first of all, I, I don't know if that even counts as a conspiracy theory, but uh, in fact, I don't think it counts well, as a conspiracy Well, that's why I said theory. he has it in, in combination with apocalypse right. monsters. I mean, people certainly want to be proven right, but... Uh, there are a lot of people who want to be uh, proven right before it's too late. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that's a tautology. Uh, how so? Because that's what too late means, right? I mean, yeah, it, I think everyone would like uh, would would like whatever they would want. They would want it before it is too late. Well, for example, in the case of climate change, you could uh, theoretically uh, the world could get its act together and take uh, steps to reduce. Uh, man-made climate change, and you could see the the temperatures go down over time, and you would be proven uh, right without the uh, world uh, frying like an egg. Well, I mean, again, you would never be proven right because you're postulating an apocalypse, and when you avert an apocalypse, and again, I'm not speaking to the truth or falsity of any given apocalypse. I mean, the prophet Jeremiah, I think, had the same unwholesome impulse in his mind when he was prophesying doom, doom, doom to the children of Israel. I, I think that there was a moment when he would stand there on the walls of Jerusalem and the children of Israel would say, yeah, Jeremiah, pull the other one. And he'd say, you know what? This place could use some damn Assyrians. And sure enough, it did. Well, I think, though, that even if you gave Al Gore truth serum, he would say, given the choice between seeing myself as a guy who saved the world and seeing myself as Cassandra, I would rather have the set of facts that favors A over B. Well, I mean, th th that's my point. He would he would rather not be seen as a... As a, 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 a but, uh, never mind. Um... I, I'm, I'm just saying that uh, we have perhaps gotten into the weeds here when I brought the apocalypse monsters into the fold, but I, I, I do think that there is a psychological uh, commonality between them and truthers in that they both visualize a world that is not, and part of them is caught up in that vision. Right. I think what we'll have to do is uh, construct a uh, taxonomy of uh, the conspiratorial from the uh, to di differentiate the, the truther from the Cassandra, from the... Uh, authentic investigator uh, from the uh, the nutcase, but of course that is a project for many, many podcasts. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Offer to fly us to your international conventions at KennethRobinTalkAboutStuff.com Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.